If you have your Bibles this evening, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians 2.12. The Apostle Paul is describing here the Gentiles who had made a commitment of their lives to the living Christ. And he says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called on circumcision by what that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, notice carefully, having no hope and without God in the world. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Our wonderful Lord, how we thank Thee for what our ears have heard and what our hearts have experienced in these past moments. How we rejoice in the great songs of the redeemed that we've been sharing together. Know how grateful we are for talent, matchless talent, unusual talent that's dedicated to Thy glory. That is a great peon of praise to Thee by instrument and by voice. And how we thank Thee that it is one of the characteristics of our faith that we give it expression in music. Know how we pray that these who have so wonderfully ministered to us will continue to be blessed in their unique ministries, and how we ask that as we now open thy word that thou will give us a sense of thy presence, how we pray that we will put out of our minds any preconceived prejudices we might have, and that we might approach thy word in the holy light of its pure truth, that we shall be, as it were, a palm-cest open responsive, receptive to the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. Oh, how we pray that when this hour becomes history and fades into the tomb of time beyond the possibility of ever being retrieved, that wonderful work will be done in our hearts so that none of us will be quite the same. How we pray that this will be the night when some who are part of this company will come to the place that Doubting Thomas did when in thy living risen presence he cried out in awesome ecstasy, My Lord and my God. Hide the self-life of the one who ministers in the message. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The last phrase of the twelfth verse of the second chapter of Hebrews is awesome. As the Apostle describes the Ephesians before they came to the knowledge of Christ, he says that they had no hope and they were without God in the world. Phillips translates that just a little more freely and says, having nothing to look forward to and no God to whom you could turn. I wish to impress upon you, and I somehow hope that this evening these words will be so impressed upon you that you shall not be able to escape them. The three words, having no hope, or to use Philip's freer phrase, having nothing to look forward to. I don't suppose that any words in our vocabulary are more dreadful than the words no hope. We all know that terrible feeling, indescribable feeling of finality and frustration and futility that comes when the physician by the bedside feels the pulse of one we love and then turns and sadly shakes his head and says, there is no hope. Once when I was about 14 years of age, I saw a man buried alive. As just a lad, I will never forget the impression of that occasion as men feverishly attempted to reach him. I was there when his father arrived on the scene and joined with the men who were attempting to get to where he was. And then when finally they reached him and lifted him out of the debris, 
did their best to resuscitate him. I remember the physician turning to his father and shaking his head and saying, there's no hope. I personally had the privilege of talking with Colonel Clark. Colonel Clark, you remember, was associated with those awful days when Corregidor fell. He said that noble company of men under the withering fire of the Japanese grew less and less. He said it was a massacre. Fighting courageously with everything they had against such a murderous onslaught, the time came when their final round of ammunition gave out. The help and the supplies, which, by the way, were constantly promised, never came. And the last message that came from Corregidor before its fall was a teletype that said there is no hope. Corregidor had fallen. For vast areas of the earth now inundated with the Red Plague, their hope of freedom is gone. Now we believe, those of us who believe that this is the infallible revelation of God to man, that according to the second chapter of the book of Daniel, this is man's day. Because in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, that you remember he could not recall, and Daniel both recalled and interpreted, he saw the figure of a man, a huge, colossal figure, and that image that he saw represented four great empires which were to appear upon earth successively. In the marvelous vindication of the supernatural origin of the scriptures, these four world empires, three of which were not in existence, appeared in exactly the manner it was shown to Nebuchadnezzar and revealed by Daniel. Indeed, Nebuchadnezzar was the great head of Babylon, 607 B.C. He was represented with his kingdom as the head of gold. Conquered by Cyrus the Medo-Persian, this was represented by the breast of silver. Medo-Persia fell before Alexander the Great and was supplanted by the Greco-Macedonian Empire, represented by the belly and the thighs of brass. Greece, as we all know, fell before Rome, and the fourth monarchy during the times of the Gentiles is represented by the kingdom that Rome established and her conquering of much of the earth. And even as that image was divided by the legs, so the empire was divided into east and west. The legs, interestingly, were made of iron. In the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, he beheld a stone falling out of heaven that struck the ten toes of the great image, and suddenly it collapsed, and the stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. That stone represents the coming millennial kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is interesting? that historically there has been but four world empires. Others have attempted, others have tried, all have failed. The lesson is that the next great world kingdom will be the kingdom of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want you to remember this evening is that the image that Daniel saw was the image of a man and that this is man's day. Those of us who believe in this revelation of God also believe that man's day is just about over. And we know that we're living near the close of what our Lord called the Gentile age. Indeed, the Gentile age was the age in which the land of Palestine was to no longer be in the hands of the Jews and when they would experience dispersion all over the earth. Our Lord said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. 
Through this long era, God has allowed man to hold the reins. But the time is evidently near when God must intervene. The diabolical genius, the threatened annihilation of the human race, make it essential for God to put a stop to man's prostituted knowledge. We are reminded of the scripture, as we were so many times in our expositional studies in Revelation, when our Lord said, except those days be shortened, there would be no flesh left in the earth. No wonder men in high echelons of responsibility, when they meet together, ask the question, is there any hope left? We've lived to see the effort of the League of Nations, the World Court, the Hague Tribunal, the Geneva Conference, and now the United Nations to develop some kind of a prophylactic against the horror and the carnage of man's inhumanity to man in the terrible awfulness and awesomeness of war. As a matter of fact, Today, increasingly, only a Bible-believing Christian has any valid optimism about the future. And we're going to see that more and more in this series. The answer to the world's crisis, we believe, is the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is one day going to split the heavens with his glory. And indeed, he is going to assume the throne and wear the scepter and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is our contention that there is absolutely no hope for man and his world apart from this great eschatological intervention, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we believe sincerely, those of us who believe in this revelation, that the hope of the world is not in you. And the hope of the world is not in me. And the hope of the world is not in any man or any group of men. The hope of the world is in him. And by the way, it is my conviction that this world will never be destroyed in thermonuclear holocaust. This world will never reach a place of ecological deterioration where, with a population explosion, it will no longer be able to sustain its burden of life. In fact, I believe, as you know, if you've read that little book of mine almost over, that before this can happen, our Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. And even though the whirling satellites above us indicate the possibility of war from the skies, and though radioactivity in the atmosphere increases in density, and we may be filled with foreboding, we know we have the promise, the assurance, that the days will be shortened by a divine intervention. Interestingly, biblical scholars have believed that before the close of this age, God may well bring once again a great, tremendous spiritual awakening, a recrudescence of spiritual like, the like of which the world has never previously witnessed. I hope with all my heart that this is true. And certainly we should pray and work toward that end. We await with eagerness that day when the prophecy of Malachi will be fulfilled and the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. There is no hope for this deteriorating, dying world, and there is no hope for you, and there is no valid, authentic hope for me apart from Jesus Christ. He is the only contradiction to the inexorable law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is running down. I want to make this message very, very personal. And I want to say, and I don't believe you'll contradict me in this, even though you may reject the message of God the message that's offered in the living Christ. You have no authentic, valid hope apart from Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of the solemn words of this text. You know, it's better to be without anything than to be without hope. 
We may be in present distress and crisis. But if we have certain assurance for the future, somehow we're able to endure the present. Sometimes endure it in triumph. But on the other hand, if we have no assurance for the immediate and absolutely none for the future, then life loses its meaning. Our situation becomes increasingly tragic. And indeed, in the language of Scripture, we have nothing to look forward to. Well, who are these who have no hope? Often we use the word carelessly, the word hope. But it's interesting when the Scripture uses the word hope, it always uses it in the same identical sense. And the word hope, as the great Dr. R.A. Torrey suggested, means in the Scripture, a well-grounded expectation for the future. Any expectation that is not well-founded, that is not solid, that is not certain, is not really hope. Now, before we embark upon the assessment of the validity of atheism and agnosticism, uh, which we plan to do, it must be admitted that the man who denies or doubts the existence of a personal, wise, loving, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, cosmic God of the universe has no hope. He may cherish some fond wishes. He may entertain some expectations. He may have some wishes. These are not hope. Indeed, the man who denies the personality, the wisdom, the love of God, the power of God, can have no certain well-founded expectation for the future. If he has any kind of a hope, it is irrational. It is baseless. If there is not a God wise enough to know what is best, loving enough to desire what is best, powerful enough to carry out what is best, then man has no hope. If there is not a God, such as the God of divine revelation, there is absolutely no guarantee that any moment nature may not plunge us into pandemonium. There is absolutely no guarantee that both nature and man may not be involved any day in a universal morass of despair, pain, and destruction. No guarantee that both nature and society may not become at any given moment hell. Man's only rational foundation for hope in the future is in the existence of an intelligent, beneficent, omnipotent God ruling nature, overruling in the affairs of men ultimately as the psalmist said, making the wrath of men to praise him. Believe me, atheism and agnosticism are unspeakably bleak, barren faiths. If a man has the courage to think them out to their logical conclusion, and by the way, most atheists and agnostics do not do it, however, some have done it. And we're going to be considering some of the pessimistic despair of modern philosophers in future messages. But I would like to cite to you this evening just two who followed agnosticism to its conclusion. David Strauss, and any of us who know anything about philosophy are acquainted with David Strauss. He began, you remember, by questioning the possibility of the miraculous. And then he attempted to reconstruct the life of Jesus, he said, from the gospel record, eliminating everything that savored of the supernatural, attempting to glean from that the true character of Jesus. He wound up in blank agnosticism. 
He said, In the enormous machine of the universe, amid the whirl and hiss of its jagged iron wheels, amid the deafening crash of its ponderous stamps and hammers, in the midst of this whole terrific commotion, man finds himself placed with no security for a moment, that on an impudent motion a wheel may not seize and rend him or a hammer crush him to powder. This is an awesome picture. But if there is no personal God wise enough to know what is best, loving enough to desire the best, powerful enough to carry out the best, no such God as the God of Revelation, then Strauss's conclusion is inevitable, and he has understated the bleakness, the darkness of the outlook for the future. You've heard me say it many times. I have to repeat it again. If there is not such a God, then we are nothing but protoplasm on the way to a manure pile. Listen to another, John Marley. The millions of hewers of wood and drawers of water come down upon the earth that greets them with no smile, stagger blindly under dull burdens for a season, and are then shoveled silently back under the ground with no outlook and no hope. Oh, how dark and terrible is the creed of agnosticism. If there is no God, these statements, as terrible as they are, as appalling as they are, as full of despair as they are, are understatements of the hopelessness of that outlook. The denier, the doubter of an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, loving God has no hope, none whatsoever. He has no rational, well-founded expectation for the future. What is interesting to me is that increasingly, modern pessimistic philosophy sees man, well, for example, Mailer speaks of him as some scum that appeared on the surface that will wash up on the beach, dry out, and be no more. A modern editor takes the position that man is now obsolete, that something else will take his place. In other words, the feeling is that man is nothing but a fly in the machinery of the universe, helplessly trapped to be destroyed at any second, ground up in the whirling wheels, and of absolutely no importance. Indeed, if you do not believe there is a God wise enough to know what is best, loving enough to desire the best, powerful enough to carry out the best, then that is the situation. No wonder the inspired psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Before we examine the credibility of revelatory truth, and I want to say very humbly that I have done this, and I'm going to go over it with you. Before we examine the tremendous claims of this revelation that God has given to man and see these claims substantiated by the inexorable testimony of history and prophecy, I want to say, and I believe the most vigorous unbeliever cannot deny this, the man who rejects the revelatory truth that God has placed in the hand of man has no hope. Many men who believe in the existence of God deny that this is God's revelation to man. These men are frequently called infidels, unbelievers. Theirs is a belief in God, a cosmic intelligence, but a rejection of God's revelation of himself in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. But actually, what do men know about God apart from this revelation? They know, as Einstein said, that he's a great cosmic intelligence. They know that he fills the infinitude of endless space, and that to man is inconceivable. 
What man knows about God apart from the revelation of God in his word only makes man absolutely nothing. And so for them, for the man who rejects this revelation, there is no expectation of the future that has any kind of a solid foundation underneath it. For example, the concept of God that we may gain from philosophy and reason is absolutely inadequate to form any kind of an authentic, rational, believable, intelligent hope. Man can only know God, only discover God through revelation. And the God of philosophy is ever a vanishing quantity. Philosophy is always in the flux, never reaches any kind of a conclusion that's settled and final. One philosophic system, those of us who've waded through it know, comes on the scene to demolish the previous one. The only concept of God that gives man a basis of expectation for the life that now is and the life that is to come is the concept of God that is found in his revelation, the revelation of God in his word and in the peerless, matchless Christ. True? Many who reject the Bible borrow their idea of God from that revelation and build a superstructure of hope. Frequently they fancy they've reasoned it out, so they discredit the Bible and throw it away. But by doing so, they unwittingly tear out the foundation of their own faith. And that's the position of theological liberalism. If you give up the infallibility and the integrity of the Bible, logically you give up the content of the Bible. And if you give up the content of the Bible, you give up the teachings of the Word of God. And if you give up the teachings, then you have no hope. There's no hope for a man who disregards or discards the revelation that God has given to man. No well-grounded expectation for the future. Repudiate this revelation of God. And the future is only filled with questions, confusion, and despair. Before we examine the evidences for the deity of Christ, before we analyze the claims of Christ, and we shall do exactly that, I assert that the man who says he believes this is the revelation of God, and you know that and I've related some incidents of this to you on previous occasions. There are those who have read and studied the scriptures and who have studied the marvelous, almost frightening surgical accuracy of fulfilled prophecy, who have come to believe that there is no way that you can explain this marvelous book except that it came from the hand of God as holy men were moved to write it. And yet, they have never committed their lives to the Christ that's revealed in its holy pages. And for that man, there is no hope. Many a man thinks he has a ground for hope because he's not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. He's not an infidel. He's not an unbeliever. He may say, I believe it. But this revelation of God holds out absolutely no hope to any but those who make a personal positive commitment of all they are and ever hope to be to this living glorious Christ. The Bible holds out no hope to the man who does not receive the Savior it presents. Let me cite just a few scriptures. Listen carefully. In the Bible, some men profess to believe. We read in John 3.36, Whosoever trusts in the Son possesses eternal life, but whosoever refuses to trust in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God continues to remain on him. Listen again. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10. And to you who are being crushed with sorrows along with us, at the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his mighty angels in a flame of fire, 
who will take vengeance on those who do not know God, that is, those who will not listen to the good news of our Lord Jesus, these will receive the punishment of eternal destruction as exiles from the presence of the Lord and His glorious might when on that day He comes to be glorified in His consecrated ones and to be admired by all them who believe in Him because our testimony has been confidently accepted among you. Listen again. Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we go willfully sinning after we have received full knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice left to be offered for our sin, but only a terrifying prospect of judgment and that fiery indignation which is going to devour God's enemies. Anyone who breaks the law of Moses pays the death penalty without any show of pity on the evidence of two or three witnesses only. How much severe punishment do you suppose that one deserves who tramples the Son of God underfoot and counts as a common thing the blood of the covenant by which he was consecrated and has insulted the Spirit that grants God's unmerited favor? So you see, one may believe, and it is my opinion, that no one can ever read and study Christian evidence and come to any other conclusion than that this is the irrefragable, infallible revelation of God and that Jesus Christ is the inhumanated God and the world's only Savior. But a man can believe that and never accept that Christ as personal Lord and Savior and indeed, in so doing, loses every vestige of hope. Well, in what sense do these that we've been speaking of not have hope? The atheist, the agnostic, the infidel, or for that matter, the orthodox believer who never yields his life to Jesus Christ. First of all, they have no hope for the life that now is, no well-founded expectation of blessedness, of purpose, of direction for the life they're now living. They're not fortified for life's inevitable vicissitudes, its emergencies, its exigencies, and sometimes its stark, grim, terrible tragedies. They may at the present moment be prosperous and have everything their heart desires in the way of material accoutrement, but unless Men have a right relationship with God unless they have a vital relationship with the living Christ. All the material things a man possesses mean very little because they can be lost within hours. I remember a distant relative of mine who had amassed considerable wealth. He retired. And then some of us will recall how the stock market, you remember, crashed way back in 1929. And this relative of mine suddenly lost everything he had, for he had been playing the stock market on the margin. He was wiped out in one day. He went to a hotel in Santa Monica took a gun, blew his brains out. Oh, our Lord said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Secondly, there is absolutely no guarantee of a continued ability to enjoy the material blessings you have. For example, there's no guarantee of continued health. Every day we read of people with great wealth who would give all the money they possess to regain their health. This past week, Betty Grable died. Joey Brown died. 
These were prominent movie stars in their time. They could not buy off death. If a man's life consists only in the blessings of health, when he loses his health, he has lost everything. Enigmatically, some of the greatest saints of God never knew what it was to have health all their lives. And yet what a blessing and benediction they were to the world. The man outside of Jesus Christ, the woman outside of Jesus Christ, has no well-founded expectation for the life that now is. Again, the man outside of Jesus Christ has no guarantee of the continuance of life. I'm more impressed with this fact every day. When James said, life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then is gone, oh, how well we know it. There's only a step between man and death, only a heartbeat. And every step we take is one step closer to the grave. One slip of the shears of fate and the cord of life is severed and we are in eternity. If a man is a true Christian, if he's committed to the triumph of Christ, knows him as Lord and Savior, he has no fear of death. Death has no terrors for him. It's simply a departure. The great apostle said to be with Christ is far better. But a man outside of Jesus Christ has no good hope for the next five minutes. I was reading an interesting incident on that Vanderbilt, tremendously wealthy man, and Garrett, another tremendously wealthy man, were discussing a deal that would have instantly made Vanderbilt $196 million. And just as he was about to sign the papers to close the deal, he had a heart attack and in five minutes was a corpse. He not only never made the deal for $196 million, he left all the millions he had behind. And he went into eternity a naked soul. The man outside of Christ has no hope for the continuance of the life that now is. Infinitely worse is the fact that the man outside of Christ has no hope for the life that is to come. Death for him can't be anything but a plunge into the vast unknown. We've been saying our life on earth is brief. You know, within 30 years, practically all of us will be gone. Many of our young people will still be here if the world is still going. I have the feeling that our Lord's coming before that, and I certainly hope so. I'm like the lady that said she wasn't looking for an undertaker. She was looking for an upper taker, and I feel just like that. Some of us will be here another 20 years, perhaps. Some will be here 10 years. Some will be five years. Some of us will be here perhaps not six months from now. But look at the stretches of eternity. Just as it is impossible for the human mind to conceive of endless space, and by the way, don't ever try it. If you work on it very hard, you'll find yourself under the bed reciting the Greek alphabet, and you'll wind up in a psychopathic ward. Our little pygmy, puny, pusillanimous minds were never made to think in terms of infinity. You can't handle it. It's just too much. But whenever I think about the vastness of endless space, endless, endless space, I realize that that represents the stretches of eternity. A million years have passed, it still stretches on. A billion years, a quadrillion years, a quintrillion years. And the farther it goes, the farther it stretches out. It has no end. Somebody said that time is a little piece of eternity cut off at both ends. Eternity has no end. What an awesome fact to have no hope for all eternity. Again, 
The man outside of Jesus Christ has no hope of blessedness after death. There's no light in the grave of a Christless man. Look into the Christless man's grave and it's cold. It's filled with despair. Again, the man outside of Christ has no hope of a glad reunion with those he's loved to have gone on ahead. The believer loses friends in Christ. But as the Holy Book says, he does not sorrow as those who have no hope. For example, he lives in the promise of uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. We do not want you, Paul says, to have any misunderstanding, brothers, about those who are falling asleep so as to keep you from grieving over them as others do who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then through Jesus God will bring back with him those who have fallen asleep. For on the Lord's own authority we say that those of us who may be left behind and are still living when the Lord comes back will have no advantage at all over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself at the summons sounded by the archangel's call and by God's trumpet will come down from heaven and first of all the dead in union with Christ will rise. Then those of us who are still living will be caught up, Dr. Weiss says in the Greek, in great masses like clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we be forever with the Lord. So continue encouraging one another with this truth. You know, I don't know of anything that lifts my heart. I don't know of anything that gives me the joy of realizing that my Johnny and his Pat and all their children and my lovely Jeanette and her physician husband and all their children and my sweet dear Julie and her wonderful husband Dick and their children and J.D. and Lee and their wonderful little Spencer and all that are part of my family know and love Jesus Christ and I'm going to spend my eternity with them. Man, that's good. Wow, that's good. Because I wouldn't want one of them left behind. No, there's no hope for the man outside of Christ. No hope for a happy reunion. One time a judge in the South was approached by a friend of his, and the friend said, Judge, I understand that you and your wife are going to be separated. And the judge got up out of the chair and he said, Don't you ever make a statement like that in my presence? No man ever loved a woman more than I love that wife of mine. Ah, but his friend said, she's a committed Christian. She's one of the most beautiful Christians I've ever known. And she has asked that our congregation remember you constantly, time after time, because she says, you have never yet yielded your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And judge, if death should come, your wife will be in the presence of the Christ she has loved and served, but you'll be alone for all eternity. He said, I had never thought of that. And he said, this will be the day when I yield my heart to that same Christ. No, there's no hope for the man of reunion with those he loves in Christ. In that world where the word of God says there will be no sorrow, no pain, no sickness, no separation, and no death. For the man outside of Christ, there is no hope, listen carefully, for pardon in the eternal world. Pardon is offered now to anyone who will accept it. Though your sins be scarlet, they can be as white as snow, and though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God says he will blot out as a thick cloud your transgressions. He says he'll remember them no more forever. The forgiveness, the cleansing offered in Jesus Christ is total and complete. As we saw in the message of this morning, if we put our faith in him, he garments us with his flawless righteousness, and there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Yes, pardon is offered. Forgiveness is offered. Life is offered. 
Listen to what Jesus said in John 8, 21. Then said Jesus to them, I'm going away, and you will look for me, but you will die under the curse of your sin, for where I am going, you can never come. And then he repeated it. Oh, listen, the wages of sin is death. What does death mean? It's just separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God when a man may still be alive in his body. But eternal death is the separation of the man, body and soul, from God forever. And the Word of God says this is the second death. And God doesn't make this decision. You make it when you decide to live your life and pillow your head in the sleep of death and go out into eternity without Him. Death only crystallizes all the choices of time. But if you die without Him, you die without hope. John said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Oh, listen, if one goes out of this world without Jesus Christ, there is no hope. There's nothing ahead but darkness. The joys of the present may last a few days, but even that is uncertain. It is certain that it will not last long. And then nothing is left but separation from God with all of its consequent misery and degradation for eternity. It seems appropriate to state the fundamental thesis of this series at this point. It is the deep conviction of my mind and my heart that there is an infinite, all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God who has revealed himself in the natural, in the supernatural, in creation, in the nature of man, in the history of Israel and the church, in the pages of the Holy Scripture, in the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and at last in the heart of the believer by the gospel. That's our thesis. And it will be our purpose to demonstrate the reasonableness, the believableness of these various facets of this position. This is where we stand, and this will be the thesis of this series on the facts and the mysteries of the Christian faith. But certainly we have established that the rejection of God, the rejection of his revelation, the rejection of his incarnation in Jesus Christ leaves a man with no authentic, solid basis for hope. Let me close by saying the believer has hope. He has hope for the life that now is. Oh, he doesn't know what the future may bring. But he knows that the Word of God says all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. He knows that. And he knows in that same beautiful 8th chapter of Romans, the 17th verse, that he who did not spare his own son will with us graciously give us everything else. Secondly, the Christian has hope for the life that is to come. The apostle writes to Titus, In the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie hath promised us. I love what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In accordance with his great mercy, he has begotten us anew to an ever-living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, yes, to an inheritance that is imperishable, unsullied, and unfading, which is kept in heaven for you, who are always guarded by the power of God through faith, in order that you may receive that final salvation which will be ready to be uncovered for you at the last time. Yes, the believer has the assurance of the Word of God, 
and the indwelling Spirit of God that he is a child of God, and if a child, an heir, and if an heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And the promise is that if in reality we share his suffering, we shall also share his glory. Wonderful hope, immeasurable hope, glorious hope. Don't let anybody rob you of that hope. In conclusion, what's your choice? No hope? Hopelessness? The man outside of Christ. Or the glorious hope of the one who in simple faith trusts the living Christ as Lord and Savior, confesses him unashamedly before the world. You have your choice. Someone has said all of us are like men standing on the seashore looking over the boundless ocean of eternity. And toward the true Christian comes gallant vessels loaded with gold and silver and precious stones wafted swiftly by the breeze of God's favor. But toward the Christ rejecter, those who will not own him and love him and confess him before the world, come no vessels. Nothing but the livid corpse of lost opportunity over which hover vultures of eternal despair, driven toward us with the mad velocity of the fast-rising tempest of the wrath and the indignation of an all-holy and almighty God. Glorious hope or no hope, the choice is with you. Let us pray. Our wonderful Lord, we know that even those who reject thy revelation and reject thee must admit that in that rejection they are also sacrificing any authentic, believable, trustworthy hope. There is only despair, the darkness of unbroken night. Oh, how wonderful are the words that thou hast given to us. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. 